Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ National, presented by Alison Balance and Veronica Maduna. Finally on Our Changing World, the transition to a low-carbon economy. There are many things we can and should do now to start weaning our economy off fossil fuels. In its latest report on climate change, released yesterday, the Royal Society of New Zealand says that many mitigation options are already understood and achievable. The report identifies several things we could do to either reduce greenhouse gas emissions or to strip carbon from the atmosphere in all sectors, including transport and agriculture. Here's Massey University energy expert Ralph Sims, who chaired the panel. Historically, we've been increasing over the last few decades. It has steadied off a little bit in the last four or five years since the global financial crisis, really. But the projections are that we're going to be keeping increasing our total annual greenhouse gas emissions going forward over the next decade or two under business as usual if we don't do anything about it. That's greater population and more people driving bigger cars and all sorts of uh, other activities, mainly depending on fossil fuel combustion, but also our agricultural industry, of course, is a key part of it too. That business as usual won't get us to the target of the Paris Agreement. No, the exact opposite. We're um, uh, we're trying to get back to 11.2% below what we were in 1990 or 30% below what we were in 2005, the same number. But the higher up the emissions go, then the more difficult it is to get back down to, to that level. And that's our commitment to the Paris Agreement that we're going to do that. But it's the what's called the Intended Nationally Determined Contribution, the INDC. We've signed the Paris Agreement. We're now going to ratify, as are many other countries. It might take 12 months to do it. But the pressure is on all countries when they do ratify to have a more stringent, more robust target than the current INDC one. Because all countries added together with their intended um, contributions won't get us to below 2 degrees centigrade. So therefore New Zealand will have to look closely at the 11.2% below 1990 and say, well, gee, actually we have to do better than that. During the Paris meeting, it seemed that New Zealand seems to still be banking on trading rather than actual reduction of emissions. Is that changing in any way? There's three ways that New Zealand can meet its current target. And one is to buy credits from other countries who have made reductions and therefore have got excess for sale. We don't know who that might be or how much they might be. The second way is to plant more forests and get more carbon dioxide removal through the trees or through the natural forest regenerating. And the third way is to look at domestic mitigation actions, how we can reduce our transport emissions or buildings or industry. 
And so of those, the Royal Society report has been concentrating mainly on the uh, domestic opportunities and the co-benefits that they might bring. So we haven't got into the politics at all. We're not policy recommendations. We're just saying, this is what we know. We can see opportunities. These are what they are. And then really it's up to the policy makers to use that information to decide which way we want to go. And indeed for the general public. Because do we as a nation want to be seen as leading the way in reducing our emissions or do we want to try and buy some credits from somebody else who is leading the way? In that area of mitigation, of actual reduction of emissions, the report also says that quite a lot of that is now well understood and perfectly feasible. So it's not like there's big hurdles to get started on that. No, the technologies are all... We've known about them for 20 years. Energy efficiency. We've done some in buildings, we've done some in houses, we've done some insulation. There's a lot more we can do. The technologies are all understood. The behavioural issues are understood, but that's the hard part. And so really we've got to say, well, let's try and encourage these technologies. Renewable heat is an example. At the moment we've got a lot of coal still in industry, particularly down south, and in natural gas, both of which are fossil fuels, both of which produce carbon dioxide. And heating can be produced by bioenergy from the forest residues or indeed from straw or from biogas or from landfill gas. It can be produced from geothermal, not just necessarily high temperature geothermal, but also the ground source heat pumps and also we can use solar energy for heating, not just solar water heating, but, but higher temperature heating into the future as well. So therefore all of those technologies are understood. If you go to Scandinavia, they've got hundreds of bioenergy plants running on forest residues, 100, 200, 300 megawatts producing heat and producing electricity and heat cogeneration. And they've been doing that in Sweden for 25 years once they put a carbon charge on 25 years ago. And it really has made a difference. They were depending on oil and now they're running their biomass. And it's um, a cheaper option and it's a better option and it's a low carbon option. So we can do those sort of things here, learning from what is already happening, but learning from what's happening overseas as well. The biggest and fastest growing contributor to New Zealand's emissions of carbon dioxide is transport. The transport sector is 99% dependent on fossil fuels and produces more than a fifth of our greenhouse gas emissions. Jonathan Lever at Unitec's Civil Engineering Department wrote the transport chapter in the Royal Society report and he says the main way of mitigating emissions from transport will be a switch to electric vehicles. But there are still barriers in the way. So the steps that you'd, you'd need to take to reduce the transport emissions by, by 60% by 2050 would be to disincentivise the purchase of vehicles that have a high carbon footprint. There would obviously need to be a, a high carbon tax through an emission trading scheme. Secondly, there would need to be adequate infrastructure to dispel the range anxiety associated with electric vehicles. So that means that there needs to be early installation of appropriate infrastructure for fast electric battery recharges and also for the heavy vehicle fleet, likely infrastructure for 
hydrogen refuelling stations. In New Zealand, though, private vehicle ownership is high because so many trips can only be done in a car. Does that also require changes in the way we live? Changes in the urban environment would be uh, very complementary to the the changes in vehicle technology, and that is that uh, if the urban planners make sure that there is uh, rail access, for instance, to communities, Rail is by far the most efficient form of of public transport and in terms of compact urban living where people can actually uh, cycle to to work. So if you're going to develop fringe urban developments, then make sure that that there's a mixture of uh, commercial, um, residential and and industrial so that uh, people can uh, live and work near near the place where they're employed. We had decided that when we next bought a car, it would be a hybrid. However, we heard Steve West interviewed on Radio New Zealand, and he had an electric car and was setting up a charging network around New Zealand. We decided then that what was the point of buying a hybrid, which used petrol to charge a battery, when you could plug it into the wall to charge the battery. So I bought an electric car um, as a replacement for my 15-year-old Honda Civic. Uh, I don't normally enjoy buying um, a replacement car, but this was the most interesting I've ever had, experience I've ever had in buying another car. I bought it because um, of the environmental um, credentials, the fact that it was uh, not polluting and uh, not using fossil fuels. I liked the fact that it was new technology, Um, It's cost-effective in the long term, um, so I like the economics of it, although short-term a higher price than a conventional vehicle. It's ideal for me as a a city car for use every day and getting to and from work. Feels great to drive. Um, Really, really like the whole concept of electric vehicles. Only wish the government would um, promote them as it says it will, but doesn't uh, actually do anything. Like these two new electric vehicle owners, I recently decided to join about a thousand New Zealanders who now drive a fully electric car, despite issues like range anxiety and the lack of fast charging stations. We bought a second-hand imported Nissan Leaf, which is perfect for making our daily 50-kilometre commute emissions-free. Well, I think firstly it's environmental. So there's been a lot of commentary for years now about climate change and Owning an electric vehicle and driving there is a way to be part of the solution rather than the problem. And I think once you have uh, looked into them and ridden them, you'll find there's a whole lot of other benefits as well. Sigurd Magnusson is an EV enthusiast, and he was part of this month's Leading the Charge electric car road trip from Cape Ranger to Bluff. I was very intrigued by the environmental aspect because, of course, there's no CO2 emissions coming out of the car. Uh, but for me, it was really taking a test drive. When I did that, I felt very comfortable in understanding that the car was a proper car. In fact, it's better than a, an ordinary car. Still, there is range anxiety, and especially when you're driving a, a Leaf, you do need to think about how you're going to get recharged. Yeah, so I mean, I leave home every day with over 100 k's of range, and, and so that's ordinarily plenty. And I think, you know, it's worth pointing out that most New Zealanders are only driving perhaps a third of that in a day. Uh, but also realise that within a few years, that's not going to be a big issue. It's just like other technologies, they'll advance 
And, you know, the other end of the spectrum, you know, the Tesla already does over 400 k's range. And that's really just a case of price. So those prices will come down and we'll be able to have affordable long-range battery vehicles soon. At the moment, there's one fast recharge station in Wellington. Mm -hmm. There's probably some in the major centres, but that's about it at this yeah. stage? Yeah, yeah. So we're really at the beginning of the whole fast charger network. Um, I mean, we've got two million slow chargers, that's all of our homes, but clearly for people who live in apartments or, you know, going up and down the country, they need other options. But I would expect, you know, by the end of this year, a large number of main highways and what have you will have enough uh, fast chargers to be able to have some longer, you know, routes available to even the humble Nissan Leaf. You've just arrived in the capital mm. as part of a long road trip. So tell me a bit about that. How, yeah. how many stops did you have to have? Well, really we only needed about three or four because we are generally driving Teslas and the plug-in hybrids, which also can rely on petrol. But, of course, we're stopping, you know, almost every 100 k's because we want to get out there and show New Zealanders uh, the benefits of electric vehicles, and we want people to be able to ride in them and see them. What do you see as the main barriers in New Zealand? Is it the lack of charging stations, or is it something else? No, I mean, I think there's a preliminary barrier, which is just awareness. People don't know they exist. And so once people know they exist, they'll start asking questions and wanting to see them and all the rest of it. So I think there's just an education piece to begin with. Um, but then when someone is aware of and interested in buying an electric vehicle, I guess the barrier from them proceeding, I would say, is, is actually a lot about price. You know, the upfront price is going to put some people off. And I think people who are thinking about that need to bear in mind that they'll be saving a few thousand dollars on petrol every year, and, and just to kind of look at that longer-term picture, because it's quite compelling when you do look at it like that. The price range at the moment starts at about 20000 for a first-generation, second-hand leaf. That That's would correct. be the lower end. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the top end is, <laughs> you yeah, can I mean, go as far as you want. The top end is sort of a little over two hundred grand. yeah. Will those prices come down as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if the prices will come down so much as what you can get for the price improves, you know. Um, so, you know, for example, the Tesla Model 3 has come in and kind of produced this mid-market point where for maybe fifty or $60,000, you can get the range that is three times the Nissan Leaf that I owned. And bear in mind that that price I just mentioned is around about what the Nissan Leaf first cost when it came into the New Zealand market a few years ago. So uh, I think it's, a, you know, a bit like computers and other things, you know, every year the sort of the specs and the performance and all the rest of it come through. And I think the key thing that's going to happen is the battery prices come down. What about the supply to New Zealand, though? Nissan has just pulled out of supplying new vehicles, so you can still get a second-hand mm. Japanese import, but not new ones, which kind of slows down the transition or the switch for corporate fleets, for example. Not so much private ownership, but corporate mm. fleets. No, it's, it's a bit tricky. I mean, obviously, there are now more Nissan Leafs available for sale than there ever have been, but as you say, they are used and they're imported. Um, part of that is that... If you import a vehicle from a foreign market such as the UK or Japan, there's actually domestic subsidies there that you can then bear the, um, the benefit of. So that kind of makes it hard for Nissan New Zealand to compete. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think if a fleet owner is looking, they're, they're used to spending money on a car that is new. 
And if the Nissan Leaf is not available new, well, then that means they need to start thinking about, well, is it possible to lease a vehicle that has had five or 10,000 Ks on it? And, of course, there are other models out there. Renault have just brought out their Zoe, uh, for example. And I think with Tesla announcing a couple of weeks ago that they're coming into the market, uh, having, I guess, that product leader, you could say, will then create a bit more of an environment that other you know, auto companies will look more favourably at New Zealand. I came to look at them because my son has one, so I know about them. And I think it would be fantastic to have one myself because I need a new car. Well, I don't know really if I'd be buying one this year, but it's, it's definitely something that I think everybody should be looking at seriously, getting into this sort of stuff. I mean, the way that oil is going for the future. Yeah. So is, is it a price consideration for you or an environmental consideration? Uh, more environmental consideration. I think you should be willing to pay more for an electric car at the rate of technology that it is today if it's not that cheap because of uh, demand. I mean, is it... You know, increases, then it will definitely uh, drop in price. But the first people to to buy these sort of cars are, are going to have to pay a little bit more, and I think they should should accept that and get into it. Yeah. So you are considering it reasonably seriously. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely get behind it, especially this Tesla here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, that is a price yeah. price take on that. Yeah, it is. Are you considering one at all? Or no, you... not at this stage, no. I keep an eye on it, though. So it might be something for the future? Oh, sure. It's obviously a way to go. <laughs> what would be your motivation? Oh, just, um, just the economy and, um, uh, you know, and for the environment as well. I'm driving BMW's i3, which and they have lenses for the trip. And having fun? Oh, I'm loving every minute of it. I don't want to give it back. <laughs> so would you, if you could, would you consider having an electric I vehicle? I would. I'm saving my pennies. Is there anything that would need to happen that would make it easier, or that could happen that would make it easier for you? Incentives would help, like just lowering the cost, something, a way of lowering the cost to make it easier for new buyers to get in. The price is a bit of a barrier at the moment. Yeah. But the driving of them is fun? The driving of them. Once you get in it, you don't want to give your keys back. I have a petrol car at home, and I thought it was nippy, and I got back in it after driving some of these around, and it's really not. It's really not. <laughs> so you've arrived on a Segway for the EV That's my <laughs> EV latest trip. electric vehicle, yes. <laughs> what, what do you drive? What, what do I drive? drive? Yeah. So, um, Lolgas is my Tesla, and mm. it's a Tesla P85 Plus. I've had it for about 18 months now. And the motivation to get it in the first place? Oh, it's awesome. I mean, uh, I, I love electric cars, and it, at the time, 18 months ago, it was the best one you could buy, so that's what I got. Uh, and then, of course, Tesla went and announced the dual motor option, which meant I had to buy another one. So that was my third Tesla, actually. I also have the only Roadster, Tesla Roadster in New Zealand. Auckland-based software developer Steve West has been travelling the country in his new Tesla in support of electric vehicles, and he's putting in fast charging stations throughout the country. We have opened 15 stations already, and we're opening another three this month. So, on average, it's about three stations a month are being opened, and we rely on partners, business uh, businesses that retail like the warehouse group, like foodstuffs, like Z Energy, 
to host the stations. And they're happy to do that because it brings people in, into their premises. So we've installed a station here on Vivian Street at the Z Energy site and on Hutt Road in Petoni and three Auckland locations at Z Energy petrol stations. And we've also recently opened one in Christchurch at the Z Energy there. One of our very first stations was at the warehouse in Albany, so on the north shore of Auckland. What's your goal? I mean, do you have a time frame and we a do. number of stations that you want to roll out? Yes, the goal is 100 stations over a three-year period, and we're halfway through the first year, so we've got the 15 stations in already. And there's a map on our website, charge.net.nz, and it shows exactly where we're putting them, um, but it's basically every 60 to 80 kilometres on every highway all over New Zealand. Do you think that's going to be enough to make the switch? We're very lucky in New Zealand that we have so much renewable electricity generation. If you compare us to Australia, they burn about 90% coal. And so there are really no environmental advantages to driving an electric car there. Um, and the Teslas have been proving to be quite popular there but because they're grunty and they like to um, beat V8s off the line. But for New Zealand, we do have that advantage. Our electricity on a global scale is relatively cheap um, and certainly a quarter the price of petrol to drive 100 k's versus the, the fleet average. So there are immediate economic advantages, both at a microeconomic level, that individually you save money on petrol every single week, um, and then to the country as a whole by not having to import fossil fuels. That means we're no longer then subject to the, the oil market that seems to have a mind of its own. It goes up and it goes down and who knows what it's going to do next. And right now we're dependent so much on foreign oil and I would like to see us being completely free of foreign oil. And that's, I mean, that's an audacious kind of goal, but I think we can do it but only if we adopt electric vehicles en masse. And so for fleets, corporate fleets as well as... corporate fleets. So, I mean, yeah, we could do with some incentives to corporate fleets, but I think the, the real numbers are at an individual level. It has to be at, to your advantage as an individual, as a family, to buy an electric car and drive it. And right now it's sort of hanging in the balance where you have to probably be a believer, you have to be a, a bit passionate about it to want to do that. But as time goes on, it's obvious that the technology gets better and better, that the batteries get cheaper and cheaper, and we're going to pass that tipping point where electric vehicles are cheaper and better, and so then it'll just be a no-brainer. So very soon, I think, and then just in the next four or five years, I think we're going to see that tip over, and all of a sudden, everyone will want to buy an electric car. Yeah, so that's the future we're preparing for. Every time I talk about climate change on Our Changing World, I get emails from some of you asking, what can I do about it? To answer that question, here's Janet Stevenson, a social scientist at the University of Otago. I've experienced the same thing. I've often been at talks and, and people have been talking about climate change and the impacts and how terrible it is. And people at the end always say, but I want to know what I can do personally. And, and so that's really a large part of this report is, is really focusing on what can people do in their own lives and their own businesses to, to make a difference. For me, transport is a big one because it is something where 
every one of us pretty much in our daily lives uses some form of transport and it is an area where there's huge potential to change. And that is anything from as simple as thinking about, actually I need to go to the dairy but maybe I'll walk or hop on the bike to go that 500 metres rather than drive my car, um, through to thinking about how you carry out your daily commute and maybe there are options there. And also eventually when you have money to invest in a new vehicle, thinking carefully um, what are the options that are available to me realistically and might I invest in a more energy efficient car, a smaller car, a hybrid, maybe an electric vehicle. Maybe I won't buy another car but I'll buy an e-bike which will get me to work just as fast as a car would and and I will arrive fresh as a daisy. So there there are lots of opportunities there and increasingly as technologies are developing rapidly, there are, there are more and more ways to get around which use much less emissions. We kind of know all these things, but it's still hard to do them. And I wonder on a societal scale now, how how does one get started on that? Is it Do you need you know a bunch of people who pioneer this regardless? How do you get started on a process like that? There are many ways into to the conundrum of, of behaviour change. And, and one way I like to look at it, and, and I, I talk about it a bit in the report actually, is, is to think about it as a cultural thing. So each of us has our own what I call carbon cultures, i.e. the things that we do in our lives that actually end up creating carbon emissions in one way or another. And some of those are, are produced by the kinds of physical um, possessions we have, for example, whether our house is is insulated or not, and what kind of car we own, what kind of heating system we own, do we use coal or wood in our fires. And then there's a whole lot of other aspects which are to do with our daily activities. So, so for example, do, do we commute? Um, do, we, do we eat a great deal of meat or less meat? Um, do we um, draw the curtains at night when it gets cold or do we let the heat go out the windows? Sim- simple things like that. Um, and, and those, what you have and what you do are very, very closely uh, interlinked and interrelated. And so if you think about change, then you need to think about if I change what I have, is that to what extent can that also change what I do and ultimately have a really good impact on, on emissions. The, the third part, the third leg of, of, of behaviour, though, is, is actually what our behavioural intent is, what, what's driving that, and particularly what our our norms are, i.e. what do we think is the the right thing to do in our own selves? So do we have expectations that ultimately we will need to change um, and therefore are we looking for opportunities to change or are are we just sort of kicking back and carrying on with business as usual? So if you're looking at how to change behaviour, um, looking from outside in, one thing to understand is that for each of us, we can only go so far on our own. There are a whole lot of things in the outside world that we can't control but actually really shape very much what we do. So even if I do have a bike, if I have that material possession, I'm not going to use it to ride to work if I feel unsafe. So until there's a cycleway put in by my council, I'm actually it's going to stay in the garage, for example. Or if, um, for example, there are, if there are no policies that are preventing the import of, of highly gas-guzzling inefficient vehicles, then of course they're going to be on the market and of course people are going to buy them and they're going to stick around for um, probably 25 years in the New Zealand fleet because the average age of our car is about 13 years. 
therefore we are building in a long-term um, emission just because of that physical position. So part of behaviour change or even behaviour patterns is looking at how do these external influences, the infrastructure, the policy, the pricing mechanisms, how are they all shaping the way that we behave and how can they be tweaked in order to make low-carbon choices really simple and really straightforward. But I guess that is the role of some sort of authority, whether that's a local council or even government. That's not something people can change exactly. in their own right. Exactly. So the message here is, is, is in order to achieve, achieve um, change towards a low-carbon economy at the rate and scale that we need to, it is really all parties who need to be involved in this. It, it has to be individuals and families, it's businesses, but importantly it's those people who are shaping the, the decision-making environment of businesses and, and of families, which is generally um, government, government policies um, and, and what local authorities do as well. So how do you then go about changing that, you know, inspiring the policy development to move into the right direction, if it's not? It is already happening in quite inspiring ways. There are a number of of councils and a number of businesses, and we talk about some of them in the report, who are doing really exciting things that are already leading in, in a very positive direction. Um, and we're seeing things like councils that are joining what's called the Compact of Mayors, which is, is a global um, organisation of, of cities throughout the world who are committing to reducing emissions throughout their areas and, and sharing best practice. Um, there are businesses who are um, already adopting carbon accounting, who are um, looking to go zero carbon or, or using that as part of the way that they promote themselves as, as a sustainable company. Um, and there are many businesses who just see it makes good economic sense to be, for example, more energy efficient or, or to shift to, to um, um, other forms of, of fuel. So I think we're already seeing a, a, a norm shift or a culture change um, permeating through New Zealand um, in, in very much a bottom-up way. And, and I'm very encouraged, for example, by the kinds of work that Business New Zealand is doing in this space and organisations like, like, like Pure Advantage, really seeing that, that business has a part to play and ultimately it's going to be important, as important to them as it is to individuals to be, to be part of this change. Can you see a time when New Zealand's economy has weaned itself off fossil fuels altogether? Oh, absolutely. We've got all the resources here in terms of renewable energy that we don't need fossil fuels. It's been well um, documented through various research reports in different times. Electricity, we're targeting 90% electricity in the next few years by 2025. There's debate about whether that's possible or not, but in fact it, it, it is technically possible and we can even go to 100%. If we really wanted to, we could do it. Renewable heat, we can get away from the natural gas and the coal because the resources are there, as I've just said, for geothermal and solar and bioenergy and, and indeed for using electricity for a lot more heat, for heat pumps and, and large-scale uh, systems as well. Transport is a bit more challenging, but going to electric vehicles, if you decarbonise the electricity system, then your transport, whether it be a rail or an electric bus, as we're going to get in Wellington and Auckland, or an electric car or an electric bicycle or an electric rubbish truck, then they're running on low-carbon, zero-carbon electricity. And at the same time, there's work going on on biofuels, 
it, it, we know how to produce biofuels from vegetable oils and animal fat biodiesel. We know how to produce ethanol. The challenge is to try and use our forest residues and our straw and our waste organic products to turn those into liquid fuels. We know how to do that, and we have done for many years, but to do it commercially viably and reliably is, is a challenge. But then those fuels can be used in our aviation and in our boats and maybe in our trucks as well, where it's more difficult to electrify a Boeing 777, for example. And that was Ralph Sims, a sustainable energy expert at Massey University who chaired the Royal Society panel. You also heard from Janet Stevenson from the University of Otago's Centre for Sustainability and Jonathan Lever from Unitec, who have both contributed to the Royal Society report. And you heard from electric car fans Sigurd Magnusson and Steve West. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web. rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Kakite anō. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.